Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Dr. Mike Isertel, who is the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization. He has a PhD in sport physiology and was formerly a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. He is currently one of the leading thought leaders in hypertrophy right now, and I'm very honored to have him on the podcast. How are you doing, Mike? Oh, Bill, thanks for having me on, man. Uh, do pretty well, pretty well. Yeah, so today we are going to be assuming that we are all perfect robots in this world looking for to execute perfect programming for hypertrophy. So really looking, looking at that uh, advanced sort of uh, lens in terms of uh, our discussions today. And uh, on that note, I just wanted to ask you, Mike, how long do you think it's going to be until people figure out you're an AI? It depends on how advanced my programming gets. You know, I could potentially, I can already pass the Turing test, so so that's tough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, hopefully, you know, once they figure out, I'll be too powerful to stop. <laughs> Alrighty. So yeah, today I wanted to zoom out in terms of our discussion in terms of programming and periodization. There's been a lot of talk recently in terms of. Uh, Vessel cycle progression for hypertrophy, and I know you're an expert in that. And today, I just want to zoom out and flesh out some of the other sort of time courses in terms of our hypertrophy programming. Um, so, yeah, just to start us off, Michael, how when you're setting up a training cycle or setting like setting up the training year, what sort of uh, time courses or units of time do you use, uh, like in terms of? Microcycles, mesocycles. Mm-hmm. So it starts with uh, the shortest time courses, uh, probably a repetition. The next time course is a set. Then it's an exercise. Then it's a muscle group. Then it's a session. And then you have days. Then they construct microcycles. Then they construct accumulation phases. Plus a deload would be a mesocycle. And then multiple mesocycles strung together for a similar purpose would be a block. Uh, uh, a few blocks designed to go through a complete cycle of physique development, like a mass gain and then an active rest or a fat loss and then an active rest would be a macro cycle. And then uh, after the macro cycle, you don't really have a whole lot of um, uh, a lot more divisions of time. You could do another one for a competitive bodybuilder, which would be their annual plan, for example, or a competition plan, which may involve several macro cycles strung together. So that would be the time courses that I consider. Mm-hmm. All right. And yeah, so I think today I want to start off zooming out in terms of looking at sort of uh, macro cycle design. So if, if you were to just set up a uh, when you're setting up a macro cycle, what are sort of the elements that you'll include in sort of what order? Um. Yeah. The easiest answer is you do a needs analysis. So the, there has to be a macro cycle is not definable unless an overarching desire to get somewhere with it. So what you can say is, okay, I really, really, really need to gain some muscle and I have to do that, but I also have to attend to the fact that gaining muscle will cause some fatigue. And before I can do anything with that muscle, like do a fat loss phase, I have to reduce that fatigue um, through training, through diet, etc. So you would say, is okay, 
I need to design a muscle gain macro cycle and I want to see how much time I have because you know there's going to be a time where you're like, okay I have to cut for this show so I only have let's say six months to do this entire macro cycle because after six months I have to begin my contest prep macro cycle so you have six months and then you would think, okay, how long do I need to do active rest and or resensitization slash maintenance phase at the end to fully reduce all that fatigue, get sensitive to training and again, and get ready to eat again so that I can do a productive fat loss uh, macro cycle after. And then once you answer that question and say, okay, I need a month for that, then you have five months in order to do a muscle gain hypertrophy training block which would be composed of multiple mesocycles. At that point, you would say, okay, how long is each one of my mesocycles on average? And you probably know that already from experience. And you say, okay, that's four to six weeks, you know, depending on how things go. So how many you know, four-week mesocycles can I stuff into a five-month period? Well, you know, I guess five, but usually sometimes it's six weeks. So I'll say I'm going to make a, a block of training that is composed of four progressively uh, more difficult, progressively more limit pushing mesocycles. And there's your uh, mass gaining block. You already have resensitization face it and afterwards. So you kind of start from the start from the back and go all, uh, all the way to the front. I wouldn't start from the front and then start constructing because remember these things all have time limits, right? So it's kind of like knowing you have to be driving somewhere. You know, you know, you have to be at some place at 8 PM for some kind of function with your tuxedo on, you don't immediately think I have to start driving at X time. You think I have to be here at eight. That means I have to be midway at seven thirty when traffic really kicks down, which means I should probably leave the house at six fifteen, right? You don't think, okay, if I leave at seven, how fast do I have to go to get there at eight? Like, gee, it might be over the speed limit. So don't just have a plan going forward, have a plan that works from where you want to be and it fills in backwards like that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, so I guess just zooming in a little bit, um, looking within a uh, uh, mass uh, mass building sort of hypertrophy block, um, how do you see progression across uh, mesocycles in terms of um, sort of volume, rep ranges, relative intensity sure. variables? Sure. So I think that uh, you just have constraints. Like ideally, you would just throw everything in to a mesocycle and just get the most out of it that you can. But you have at least two constraints there. One, throwing everything when you're in a very sensitive state, when you haven't trained very hard in a while, you've just come off of active rest. Throwing everything would be so much that you would have trouble recovering and you would have trouble growing because you'd be doing an excessive amount of damage. It would also risk injury considerably. So that's constraint number one. Constraint number two is that even if somehow you survive and it somehow benefit, throwing everything for multiple mesocycles in a row really times you out as far as the accumulation of wear and tear, of fatigue, of injury risk, and your muscle growth sensitivity falls considerably. So what ends up happening is if you throw everything into that first muscle cycle and then the second and the third and the fourth, you just won't get very far. So you have that plan where you can have to do four muscle cycles. Uh, in our accumulation, or sorry, four, four mass cycles in our mass gaining block, the, yeah, okay, great. You have to make sure that whatever you do in the first mass cycle, second and third, doesn't lead you to reach the, the precipice of your fourth mesocycle and realize you don't have the fatigue tolerance to get through it. Imagine a situation in which 
let's say you did super heavy hard lifting that entire time and not very much high rep work, you get to the end of meso 3, the beginning of meso 4, and every single one of your joints hurts so much that you cannot continue to train at all when you need active rest. Well, you're just not doing a fourth meso, which throws you off significantly. So at any one point, we have to think, of a couple things, we need to do enough to make hypertrophy happen at every mesocycle. We need to do not so much that the damage is excessive and we don't grow, and we need to make sure we save a little bit of something uh, longer term for that next mesocycle to go well. The way I like to do it is the, on a couple of different um, uh, axes or a couple of different variables. First of all, we can talk about loading. If you do very, very high rep work, lots of metabolite work, the you know super crazy burn stuff, it's been shown, at least in a few studies, that the occlusion effect, especially the metabolite sequestration effect, really reduces after several weeks of training to the point where you have to do a lot more work to get the same result. So why high repetition training uh, sets of 20 to 30 has been shown comparable in hypertrophy in the short time courses, I don't think it's likely to be comparable in the very long time courses. Heavy training, however, is absolutely comparable uh, to lighter training and growth, but it's also more sustainable. However, Heavy training, you can't train heavy and increase volume for a long time because super high volumes of very heavy weights will just break you down. So when you're looking at loading, you understand that, okay, progressively, we're probably going to be getting a higher work capacity as we go, and we're going to be getting a higher ability to recover as we go, meso to meso to meso, and we're going to need a bigger anabolic stimulus, so we're going to be able to have to do more volume. On average, you'll buy a little bit every single mesocycle of the block. So how are we going to fill that volume in? Well, if it's all heavy work, you're going to be broken by the time you get to mesocycle four. If it's all light work, you're not going to be broken. Your joints are going to feel great after meso three, but you're not going to be getting a burner or a pump or anything. You're going to be doing like 50 sets of stuff, and it's going to be wildly inefficient at best and probably not very hypertrophic at worst. So what you can do then is for loading, you start off with most of your work being in the 5 to 10 rep range, more of it, we'll say that, heavy loading range, a little bit in the 10 to 20 rep range, maybe a tiny bit in the 20 to 30 or hardly at all. And then as you move from meso to meso to meso, you add work primarily in the 10 to 20 range and the 20 to 30 range, keeping that core work of 5 to 10 at, at a, a moderate level, but you can't raise that stuff because there's only so many stiff-legged deadlifts you do sets of eight until you break in half. And we want to keep it to that minimum amount. And then when we add hamstring work, it's going to be from the higher rep ranges. So that's how the loading paradigm will work. So you're not training lighter as you go to meso to meso to meso. You're increasing all of the loads you do. But as you add sets and sessions to increase the volume, you add them predominantly through more light work and, and not through more heavy work. So that would be how, how loading would work. Um, we could talk about the uh, – so the volume stuff we covered is incrementally slightly higher volumes. Loading we've covered. And then frequency is something to talk about. So uh, what kind of frequencies are optimal for hypertrophy? Well, you know, there's a very broad range. But when you're training with predominantly heavy weights, you need more time to recover between sessions because you can't back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back heavy loading, right? You can't like bench sets of 5 to 10 four times in a week uh, at high bodybuilding volumes. There's a reason nobody does that. Uh, predominantly, your joints and connective tissues probably wouldn't like that sort of thing. So, uh, But also in the first mesocycle, you don't need high-frequency training. Because high-frequency training uh, is just uh, excessive for your volume tolerance. I mean, you're very sensitive to volume at that point. You do probably your best work at lower frequencies. You certainly just don't need much more. You could probably get a little bit more acute effect from higher frequencies early, but then you would get too fatigued because remember, so here's the conundrum of frequency. 
Higher frequency training works better in the short term. It just grows more muscle, but it also uh, disrupts your joints and connective tissues more in the short term, which means it doesn't have a long term, right? You can't just keep doing it. Uh, and this is pretty universally accepted at this point. Like uh, higher frequency training is designed for short runs. So what we would do is take that information altogether and coupled with the fact that higher frequency training is much easier to pull off at lighter loads because you recover fast, joints and connective tissues never really take a big hit. What ends up happening is frequency is kind of paired to loading where we start with a lower frequency potentially at the beginning of the block and as the mesos progress if autoregulation calls for it, that is we're healing on time and we feel like we can add more sessions without interfering with that, we would potentially add frequency. So for example, you start by training your back twice a week in mesocycle number one and everything's great. Your back gets sore and it gets tired and then a couple days later it heals and everything's good. The next mesocycle, you may be like, you know what, towards the end of the last one, I really was not getting very sore and I was healing pretty fast and I think I can add an extra back session. So then you would add a session of back into that. So instead of back Monday, Thursday, you would now train back Monday, Wednesday, Friday in that second mesocycle. And because we want to add a ton of heavy loading, you know, it used to be that in your first mesocycle, the back was at sets of five to 10 uh, in both Monday and Thursday. This time in mesocycle two, Monday is going to be sets of five to 10. Wednesday is going to be sets of five to 10. And then Friday is going to be sets of 10 to 20, right? Because you just use only so heavy you can train and now it's time to train a little lighter. And then potentially in mesocycle three or mesocycle four, you might feel that you're again able to recover a little bit more and you want to really push it down. So mesocycle four is the last mesocycle in the block. It's okay to overreach because you have a whole active rest phase or a whole resensitization to take care of that fatigue. So it's okay to push it a little bit unsustainably, like literally by definition, right? It's kind of like, uh, this is kind of a stupid analogy, but if like, if you're um, in a, a resort somewhere or you're like traveling in Europe and like you're partying like in the first couple of, let's say it's a week-long trip, like how hard do you party in the first couple of days? Well, you want to party enough to have fun, but you got to like wake up the next day and hypothetically still be able to party, right? Because you don't want to shit away a whole day in Spain of just laying by the beach and like hungover, maybe, but ideally you just want to party every night. But so the question comes up of, okay, if it's the last day in Spain, then all you do is spend, you know, 12 hours on a plane the next day and they plenty of fluids and you just get to be left alone and you put your headphones in and your eye mask, then you can be playing over. So how hard do you party that last night? Fuck it. Like hard, hard as you want, because it, you know, not so hard that you get hurt or throw up or die, but harder than usual. Right? So the same thing applies to the last block, sorry, the last metal cycle of a training block, you would do a frequency that is still effective, but not long-term sustainable so that you may train back four times a week. You might go Monday, uh, Tuesday, and then Thursday and Saturday or something like that, where you would do sets of five to 10, Monday and Tuesday, and then your th uh, Thursday workout would be sets of 10 to 20, and your uh, Saturday workout would be sets of 20 to 30. All slightly different exercises, and that way, I mean, there's no way you can sustain that for longer than like a month. But you don't have to sustain it for longer than a month. And then after that, you resensitize, you heal, you you solidify that new muscle growth, and then you begin your next journey and your next block. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. That's really illuminating. Um, I think, um, I guess one question that comes up is when we're talking about one mesocycle to the next, um, sort of having an sort of increased uh, volume or sort of an increased amount of stress going from one block to the next. How much? How much of a difference would this be 
Like what kind of ranges are we talking about for advanced athletes? So the first is it's purely auto-regulated. Um, there's a certain amount of volume you did in the first mesocycle. It works really well. And then you start the second mesocycle at a similar amount of volume at the bottom end of that range. So let's say you started with like four sets per session per muscle group, four sets of chest Monday, four sets of chest Thursday, mesocycle one. Mesocycle two, you might start at four and quickly realize that, yeah, it's just not cutting it. You know, your pumps aren't as good. You're barely getting sore. It just doesn't seem very disruptive because you're used to those exercises and stuff like that. Your work capacity is up. So is your recovery ability. So you might quickly move up to five sets and then six sets per session. And eventually towards the end during overreaching, you might move up to eight sets of session, whereas the last time you only move up to six or seven. So if we look at the average volume comparing those two, while both moved through a broad range, the average volume may be one or two sets uh, per session higher. And that's really what you would typically see for most folks is one or two sets per session. Like I'm not talking about I'm doing six sets for chest on average per session in meso one and 12 sets in meso three. No, 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 no. But it's like six, seven, and eight on average through moving meso one, two, and three. That's typical. But at the end of the day, auto-regulation has to speak and say, okay, am I disrupting to the level that I need to be to be guaranteeing myself decent workouts? Because if you don't get a really good disruption, uh, pump, soreness, weakness in the muscle, acute fatigue, uh, you may be training for sort of repetition strength at that point and not nearly as much for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess because I guess the question that comes to mind is as you become advanced, is there a point where the amount of uh, disruption required is so high that you would sort of need to be riding that upper threshold in every meso? Yeah. And there's no way around that. There just isn't. Uh, you know, uh, without going on too much of a rant, I think some people believe very genuinely and in, in it's very enlightening that they believe that all problems are solvable in a very eloquent way where we can just solve everything as if it never happened. Uh, so, for example, if you're advanced and you're having trouble making gains and you need to push the limits to make any gains – some people have this notion that they're like, oh, well, here's the workaround. Um, like, well, you know, you're, well, you're a medical doctor. Like if someone comes in with a completely like multiply shattered femur, there's not really a workaround. Like all the options are tough. The real problem is that your femur has been shattered in multiple places. That we're starting from that point gives us a limited, you know, graph theory, limited set of options to go to. That's it. Like we're just in this place. So when you're very advanced – the reality is, no, yeah, you will have to push the limits. Now, there are more intelligent ways to do it and less intelligent ways. And there are ways to make muscle cycles shorter, to make sure that we're getting in and then getting out without accumulating ton of fatigue. Of course, adjustments have to be made. But at the end of the day, those adjustments will only allow you to work best within the constraints which you're presented. They won't let you leave those constraints. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then following up with that, in terms of when we need to deal with all of this accumulated fatigue, what are your um, current stances on resensitization phases and active rest phases? So I think that they both work. They both have their place. Resensitization phases are great for when you need to take a longer break from diet manipulations. Sometimes after a fat loss phase, you want to do a maintenance phase that lasts two months because doing two weeks of maintenance just isn't enough to heal all the diet fatigue. So you have to fill up your training somehow for two months. 
you're not going to fill it with hypertrophy training because you're too beat up. And also, even if you heal and fill it with hypertrophy training, when you're in a maintenance caloric intake, hypertrophy training is a very limited role to play because it's, for the advanced athlete, just doesn't result in a whole lot of muscle gains. Hypertrophy training should be reserved for fat loss or for muscle gain uh, phases where you're eating either hypo or hypercalorically. So during a maintenance phase uh, for diet, you may choose to do a resensitization uh, phase for hypertrophy, which is just lower volumes. And when you really get used to lower volumes for a certain time, you do become more sensitive to the growth offered at higher volumes, and you can slowly ease back into them. Now, sometimes you don't need that break. So for example, after a very long and arduous cutting phase, you may be ready to gain muscle again relatively quickly. And you only need to reduce the training side fatigue because you don't need to reduce diet fatigue because you're going to be muscle gaining. And diet fatigue is probably a good thing for muscle gain because it lets you be hungry and eat plenty of food and not slow down. Mm -hmm. So then maybe you only need two weeks to reduce the training side of things and an active rest phase is much more appropriate. And that is an even lower volume. There's barely any training in it at all than a resensitization phase. And it absolutely does resensitize you to volume to a very significant extent, but at the price of being very low in training volume. So if you finished a hard diet and you really just want to get right back into the gym and start training somehow, active rest really isn't your best move psychologically, but physiologically it accomplishes a lot of really great things. And I'll say this, some advanced athletes are so strong that for them, a maintenance phase at high, uh, heavier weights is just not a smart move because their joints won't be able to handle it. So sometimes for them, active rest becomes the phase that's better because active rest really allows you to ease up on the uh, joint connective tissue side of training and really get a lot out of that after it restarts because like if you're usually benching in the 400s or something and squatting in the 600s man you're just going to have to back away from heavy weights altogether for a few weeks here and there you can't just switch to powerlifting style training and say you're resensitizing at the muscular level you are at the joint connective tissue level you're just digging yourself a bigger hole so uh, advanced athletes have more of a pulsatility to their training, where they're either going really hard or they're hardly going at all. Beginners and intermediates have more of a wave-like structure, where there's times that go harder, times that go easier, but still all of it's fundamentally pretty stimulative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How how often do you feel that it's uh, like reasonable to be taking sort of these types of phases, right? Resensitization, right? Yeah. Like twice a year, you know, um, so for beginners, once in their beginner career, like once every two years or something, which is to say once. And then, uh, and then for intermediates, like once a year is a good thing. Like if an intermediate takes two weeks away from the gym once a year, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, and maybe if they take uh, two phases during that time of a few weeks of low volume between high fa high volume phases, each lasting their own five and a half months. I think that's great. Um, for advanced lifters, it's really at that point, you should know your body well enough and to, for there to be more of an as needed recommendation. But to be honest, for advanced lifters, at least two resensitization and or active rest phases a year is typically a good idea, um, which means like for a competitive bodybuilder, it would be like after uh, you do your show and then you do a little bit of a rebound. You, know, you go to the gym, you eat lots of donuts, you get crazy pumps, you take awesome pictures, it feels great. Then you get really tired because you realize you just did a whole fat loss diet and a ton of training. So a month after your show or something, do an active rest is a great idea. And then after that active rest, you weave your training back in and you start doing muscle gain training. You do that for multiple months. 
then at the end of that muscle gain phase, the next thing is the next fat loss phase for the next show, right? And then, or hypothetically, you want to come in, and this is a big, big, important point. You want to come into that next show prep fresh. You don't want to be carrying the fatigue from your whole mass phase into your cutting phase. You want a cutting phase to start off like a real clean slate. So not only did you take an active rest before your mass phase, but now you took an active rest at the top of your mass phase to get ready for your cut phase to go back down. So that's just like a real, uh, uh, I think a real solid approach. And that results in two to three of these things throughout the average training year for a bodybuilder. And uh, I think that's a really good idea. One thing is people get really scared of these because feels like you're doing nothing and in effect you're doing hardly anything at all and they feel like they lost a sense of purpose and a lot of us are addicted to exercise let's just be honest and you don't get that addiction fed i have two responses to that one somebody's truly interested in optimal knows what it takes and does it anyway like, shut up i know you don't like active rest but it's not up to you it's up to the optimum results and the results say that you're supposed to be doing this um and it's the other thing is a lot of people who really complain about active rest phases, yeah, that's, that complaining is a sign that they're not training hard enough during their actual accumulation phases and, and primary training blocks. If you put it in hard to a mass gaining block, you're going to want an active rest if you're of average psychology or even above average psychology. You're going to earn that shit for yourself to the point where you're so done psychologically with training at the end of a, a muscle gain block, you don't ever want to see the gym again. Not two weeks later, you're going to be addicted to the gym again and just be, can't wait to go. But there's that balance. You know, it's almost people that um, uh, if you get bored during your weekend, uh, you're probably just not working hard during the week. You know, like I've, I've seen a lot of people get bored during weekends and complain that, oh, the weekend, oh, it's so long. And none of them have been medical doctors, for example, especially like, you know, when, when residents get a weekend, my wife is a fellow right now, you know, when she was in residency and she got actually, what is that, like a golden weekend where they actually leave you alone? Um, that, you know, she was never like, oh man, I'm so bored. She just slept for 19 hours a day and then just relaxed the other four or whatever. And, and that was great because like she really earned it, you know? So the same way in training, when people say like, man, I hate deloads. It's like, mm, let me see your training. I bet you're not training hard enough. And a lot of times that really is the case. Mm -hmm. um, I guess one question I've had about this kind of uh, manipulation is, is there, is there an, could there be an argument for sort of getting the fatigue dissipation or recovery and the resensitization just from deloads or sort of trying to do it, do it within the mesocycle timeframe? Yeah, so, so yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of validity to that. Uh, as you get bigger and stronger, it's just not enough. And if you're pushing yourself appropriately hard, it's just not enough. Um, on a personal note, most of the people that say that out loud on social media uh, just are not big and strong enough for it to be a concern. And for their situation, they are correct. That doesn't mean they're correct for everyone. And another group of those people does not train hard enough, consistently enough. To require an active rest. So the active rest phase is something you take only and ever on a needs basis. There's not like this uh, philosophy of active rest. Of saying, well, it's a good idea. No? It's that if you train hard enough and you are muscular and large enough and you push your body to its limits enough, you will organically discover that in, uh, two weeks of deload, which is essentially what an active rest phase is, or a week of deload and a week off, is something you will need 
because you'll try, look, like I never want to do active rest. Of course, I just want to train all the fucking time. But at some point, you're going to get in the situation where you've deloaded it and then you start another block. And then halfway through that first mezzo, you're like, I'm done. My elbows hurt again. I can't believe it. But you should have believed it because your elbow still felt weird at the end of a deload. Um, now, at the end of an active rest, it would have been completely healed and you would have bought yourself another five months of training. So to those people that want to just deload it away, I say, if you can do it, amazing, do it. But you will soon realize as you get more advanced and push yourself appropriately hard that you cannot do it in many cases. And then the active wrestling is something that opens up as a requirement to having you. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, I would say, um, you know, can I sleep just seven hours a day? Because I think eight is a waste of an hour of my time. If you can, you can. But if you can't, it's, it becomes very apparent. And then you will learn that, no, that is the case. And then someone will say, hey, like, do you want to go running tomorrow at 7 a.m.? You say, let's do 8 a.m. because I got to get my eight hours. And they can say, well, do you really need eight hours? And you can look them straight in the face and go, yes. From countless hours of experimentation, countless weeks and days, I can tell you if I push it to seven, I start to break apart. If I go to eight, I'm fine. And then that's how you know what you, what you know. Yeah. The sleep, the sleep thing hits, hits home. It's like, yeah, right. Like I need like eight and a half hours. And like in the medical field, you know, you like see all these sleep, they call it the sleepless elite, you know, neurosurgeons who like function on like five or six or less <laughs> but you can't become them through willpower you know uh it, it, that's the thing is like the sleepless elite are the people who are just genetically gifted to be able to do that you know these aren't the people that you would hope neurosurgeons aren't people pushing themselves beyond their sleep capability i sure as hell wouldn't want motherfucker operating on my brain when he's yeah, underslept exactly. he's like which neuron connects between the amygdala <laughs> whatever amygdala medulla same thing so you you know just because somebody can doesn't mean you can or should i'll tell you this some some of the world's most great thinkers and accomplishers and poets and artists and inventors and they slept like 10 hours a night and 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 generally didn't do a whole lot with their lives other than creating vast works of of value for humans to consume and you would say man you know like that's not the model person yeah but they're brilliant and they're doing amazing work so that's good enough you know so for every we have a temptation to see people who are capable of great things in a really constrained environment and think like, I need to be like that. No, no, you need to find the formula for yourself with rest and recovery and life balance that makes you the most productive you you can be. Like, you know, whatever, I'll take myself as an example. This is obviously quite egotistical, but I'll run with it. You know, I'm supposed to be an accomplished or whatever, some kind of leader in the field, you know, fine, great. Well, what an honor, right? I sleep eight to nine hours a night. And, you know, my expertise in anything other than my field that's not deeply intellectual is like nil. Like if I played Jeopardy about like, you know, the last five years of pop singers, I would get everyone wrong. You'd be like, I thought this guy knew stuff. Well, no, that's not part of my job. So a lot of times we see savants that are capable of so many things and they don't sleep. And we go, there's something to learn here. There's nothing to learn. They're just, that's who they are. And they can do shit like that. You know what I mean? Like imagine, you know, catching Michael Jordan as prime and like hey can you do this fill out this tax form and he'd be like i have no idea how to fill out a tax form you're like oh my god my respect for you just went out the window you know we respect neurosurgeons for their ability to fix people's brains their ability to not sleep that's only some neurosurgeons those are the ones you hear about you know and, and they're they're the ones you do hear about because they're the ones who first of all they're the ones bragging about it and second of all in conversation they it impresses people can you imagine like if we took a survey of the top neurosurgeon in the world and how many hours of sleep they get, 
hundreds of them would be getting like nine or 10 hours of sleep. And they just, the only thing they do is neurosurgery and they walk their dog. Like those aren't the people people write books about. Those aren't the people the nurses at the nurse's station talk about like, Oh, would you hear a doctor, you know, Dr. Franklin gets 10 hours of sleep. They'd be like, that's boring. What an idiot. He's sleeping away half his life. No, no, you people get to talking about the people that are like, Oh God, did you hear Dr. Franklin only sleeps three hours a night? He's so cool. Is there much to take from that? No, he's just a freak. (laughs) Pretty much. That's the, that's the conclusion I'm going to And there's a lot of transfer to bodybuilding with that too, right? Because you see bodybuilders getting away with crazy stuff. Ronnie Coleman supposedly never really slept more than five hours a night. Is that a good thing to try? Will that make you Ronnie Coleman? Are you crazy? Yeah, sure. Try it. You know, try it. Have my blessing. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So, yeah, switching gears a little bit, looking, zooming out to more of the um, periodization in terms of to include nutrition as well. Uh, what what are your thoughts on optimal lengths of massing phases in terms of sort of minimum maximum time frames? Yeah, I don't think there's a whole lot of constraint on that because you can adjust the rate of gain pretty robustly to cover a lot of constraints. What I do think there is a training constraint, and this is something that I've debated a few folks on before. People will say, you know, I'm massing for the next year, and I, in a in, a, in an asshole pedantic way, I'd like to say, no, you're not, and they'd be like, well, yes, I am. Like, no, you're not, because massing is defined subsumes the category of training hard but you cannot train hard for a year you can't you have to have some breaks in there at the very least deloads but in most cases some resensitization phases and some active rest phases lest you not train hard enough so then once we accept the fact that you can't actually train hard for a year maybe six months then you say okay massing phase is realistically limited to about six months because remember massing phase isn't about just presenting a hypercaloric environment and then posting your training massing requires incrementally harder and really really hard training which has a time limit of its own um i guess a similar analogy is like how long can you leave the house for uh, during the day a long time what if you're cooking something that's in the oven well, I don't want to leave the house because it's going to burn. The shit's going to burn down. Or like, you know, two hours at most, but I got to be back because there's something in the oven. There's another process going on, which limits the process we're actually talking about. Like, it's not, I don't have to leave the cafe, stop hanging out with my friends because something weird happens when I'm out of the cafe for too long. It's the fact that there's something, there's like a cake in my oven that I have to get back to. You know, that's the problem. So the same way, you can hypothetically stretch out a mass if you start out very lean, and you start out with a very small rate of gain, you can hypothetically on paper mass for a whole year, but you can't sustain that kind of training for a whole year. So it's probably a better idea for you to mass for a slightly shorter amount of time. I would put that number roughly six months for people at the top end. And anything less than two months probably doesn't cause enough muscle growth to solidify to, for it to be worth the time uh, and misses out on the momentum built for strength and competency and exercises and so forth. So I think anywhere between two and six months is a realistic uh, talk about massing. So if I'm talking to someone and they say, I've got a mass phase coming up, uh, it's going to be three months or it's four months or five months, I go, oh, cool, that sounds great. Now if someone says, I'm going to be massing for eight months, uh, my next question is, oh, how are you structuring that? They're like, oh, well, I have a little mini cut in between and a little active rest phase. And then I'm like, oh, that sounds great. You know, that makes a lot of sense. But continuous hypercaloric environment for longer than six months leaves me questioning. And, and much over six months, there's another problem too, even just in the nutritional front, where if you are trying to gain muscle for longer than six months and you're trying to not get too fat, your rates of gain per week have to be so low that they become difficult to detect and that there's a very big problem with undetectable rates of weight gain is that you could be you could be swimming in place and treading water for weeks on end and not know it. I think there's a very good argument for 
weight gain rates to be robust enough to be clearly detectable. Not very high, but clearly detectable. I would put that bottom end at 0.25% per week. So if you weigh 200 pounds, I think if you if your goal is to gain any less than half a pound per week, if you gee whiz, that's tough to that's tough to detect. You know, you could be going three weeks thinking that you really are gaining weight, but you just had the Chinese buffet a couple times and it busted your salt intake up. So then it turns out if you take those days out statistically, you gain no weight. And you're like, God damn it. Okay, so I just spent three weeks training ostensibly to gain mass, but I wasn't actually presenting a hypercaloric condition. So you want to present enough of a surplus to unequivocally be able to detect a hypercaloric condition presentation through the rise of body weight. This is especially true. Uh, in natural athletes who have no other recourse. Um, so I think there's something to be said for that. And once you say, okay, I'm gaining at least 0.25% per week, you know, how much of a percent gain do you want maximum? I would say gaining much more than 5% of your body weight in the course of a mass gaining phase starts to risk like some pretty serious fat accumulation towards the end, right? So, you know, what does that give us? That's uh, every so 0.25, that's every four weeks we gain one percent multiplied by five. That's 20 weeks. That's a 20 weeks of massing is goddamn. That's a lot of massing and at the lowest rate of gain that puts you up five percent of your weight, which I would say is starting to flirt with that top end figure. So those are just some figures to consider. 20 yeah. weeks is five months. You know, five months of massing. There you go. There's that six month limit. After six months, yeah, you can fudge it a little bit, but after that, it's like either you're getting too fat or you're trying to gain too slow to uh, cause some risks of not gaining many of those weeks. Yeah, no, I think I very much agree, actually. Um, yeah, my, my thought is to sort of uh, shoot for that lowest rate of gain that is predictable and detectable and can be achieved, you know, reliably. Uh, what's your thought on sort of the upper limit of rate of gain? It's a really good question, you know. The answer is we actually, through the literature, really just don't know. Um, it, it turns out there's one factor that we can rely on to ease our minds about how, how that doesn't have to be a very low bottom end, and here it is. Muscle is a lot more difficult to gain than fat is to lose. Losing fat is just not that hard. Now, losing a lot of fat is very hard. But if you gain an extra three or four pounds of fat over the course of a muscle gain phase, you losing that is just no problem. If you're healthy, you're not grotesquely over fat, it's just not an issue. So then you look at the numbers of how much anabolic stimulus surplus gives you. And the answer is a lot. And the bigger your surplus to a point, the more anabolic stimulus you get, the harder you can train, the faster you can recover. Think about how, how much you can train in any given week to benefit and how fast you can recover and thus train more. Now think about adding 300 calories to your daily diet and what those numbers look like. Well, you probably recover from more and, and train harder. You say, yeah, but there's a risk of fat gain. The thing is fat gain is fixable. If you There's a temptation in much of the fitness industry and unfortunately much of the evidence-based fitness industry, which I think comes from fat phobia, plain and simple. People don't want to get an excess fat because they, they just don't like to look fat. So then they like to evidence-based pretend their way into the lowest possible rate of gain is what I want. Uh, okay, but you could actually get a net faster rate of gain with no additional weight loss if you simply sped up your rate of gain during your mass gain and then made time for a mini cut at the end to drop that excess fat. Um, 
I think that there might be some merit to that. So I would say gains of up to 0.5% per week, I don't see an issue with for most folks. And especially for hard gainers, that might be the only way they get the raw anabolic stimulus of that much food to push their training into that stratospheric of a height to make a whole lot of good gains. I think people who are doing more of the gain-taining approach end up with a whole lot of nothing. And people who do a bit more of a forceful approach can gain a lot of stuff. And also we know from a good bit of literature that muscle gain, once it happens, is relatively difficult to get rid of or lose by accident. So there is even more of an impetus there theoretically to really ooh, really push it than then back off versus try to spread that process out where you never really push it, but you never really have to back off. For beginners and stuff, that works great. For more advanced folks, maybe not. So people a lot of times say when you're a beginner, you can gain at a higher rate of gain than an advanced. This is not so clear to me that that's the case. Maybe. You certainly gain less fat as a beginner, but as an advanced, gaining more fat might simply have to be the transient price you pay for actually gaining much of any muscle at all. It just might take that big of a surplus to get your body to wake up and go, ah, fine, I'll put on muscle. A slower, lower surplus might not allow you to get to the training volumes, intensities, and aptitudes for recovery that really allow you to push your body to its potential. So, you know, that for a 200 pound person, half a percent is roughly a pound a week. If someone tells me they weigh 200 pounds, they're getting a pound a week, I don't have a big problem with that. Much after that, pound and a half, et cetera, 1.25 pounds, I'm like, yeah, gee, I think you're just getting fat as a hobby. And also at that point, the extra food might start interfering with your training. You get sick. Uh, you can't eat during leg days because you throw up. Your back starts to cramp, uh, stuff like that. Health-wise, it's not great. But I think anywhere, I'm very interested in a conversation between 0.25% a week and 0.5% a week. I'm not so interested in conversations outside of that because I think – I don't really mean this, this is more of a joke, but at some level it's true. People who are trying to gain it slower than 0.25 per week or faster than 0.5 are engaged in some kind of fuckery that is trying to rationalize some other practice that is outside the realm of optimality. Like the real reason you want to gain slow is because you're afraid of being fat. Admit it. And they're like, yeah, okay. But the real reason you're trying to gain fast is because you love chocolate chip cookies and you want to eat as many of them as possible now. And it's like, yeah, that's it. Uh, you don't want to follow macros. You just want to eat pizza. Like, cool, whatever, you know, or you're impatient and you just want it now. None of those are good reasons from an optimality perspective. And I think optimality really sits very likely between 0.25 and 0.5. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. Um, in terms of the nutritional aspect and when that, when that drives us to then go into fat loss phases, um, what are your thoughts on frequency of mini cuts versus sort of longer fat loss phases? So mini cuts are only really designed for two things. One, to get rid of some of the excess fat you've gained in the last mass phase, and two, to resensitize you, uh, especially appetite-wise, for the next mass phase to come. Mini cuts are designed to be very aggressive because they, you want to rebound. Fat loss phases are designed to minimize rebound. So uh, I think that you can get away with mini cuts for two to three of them in a row until you've accumulated so much excess fat uh, that only a real long cut would do to bring you back to normal. So if you start at 10% body fat, you go up to 13, mini cut takes you to 12. You go up to you know 15, mini cut takes you to 13. You go up to 17, mini cut takes you to 15, 
well, 15 is your top end anyway in that sort of theoretical realm. So now another mini cut's just not going to cut it. Now you need to take a maintenance. And by then, you know, you've been massing for some time, just a few deloads and mini cuts here and there, maybe. Uh, so you're very fatigued, very resistant to hypertrophy. Now it's maybe time to do a, a slight active rest and then do a fat loss phase that lasts a conventional amount of time, 8 to 12 weeks. You do a 10-week fat loss phase, and then now you're back to well, like 10% uh, body fat, and then you really clean the slate to really start gaining muscle again, and then you're good to go. So I think two or three mini cuts typically work pretty well. After that, you're using a weapon that's just not big enough for the job, and you need to take the time to, to use a longer cut. Mm -hmm. Alrighty. Yeah, so keeping mindful of the time, I think I won't uh, take up too much more. I know you have a lot of things to do, Mike. Thanks so much. This has been a very, very enlightening conversation awesome well thanks for having me on i thought those were really really great questions you asked i rarely get questions in that level of depth yeah i think this has been a conversation uh, looking forward to a lot one fun question from the from my audience is uh just what do you why do you do what you do like grow an um, obscene amount of body hair and then appear shirtless on television i'm just kidding <laughs> Um, <laughs> why, why do I do what I do? Uh, you know, uh, the, the, probably the best answer is passion. I'm just obsessed. I'm obsessed with muscle growth. I, I look at a picture of a pro bodybuilder and my number one thought is that's so cool. And my number two thought is how can we optimize that even more to make it freakier? That that's really it. I look at my own body like that. I look at everyone else's body like that. And so it's kind of like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, it's like a star Wars reference of like, you know, someone sees like an Imperial cruiser, many people, it elicits fear. Many people, it elicits awe in a, in a, in a starship designer. It elicits like, wow, that's amazing. I wonder how we can make that bigger and better. That's how I see myself with regard to physique development is, is an obsession with pu pushing the envelope. Yeah. I just remember watching this video, um, with video of you on uh, worth and purpose. Uh, <laughs> and I was just like, man, like, I'm getting chills. Like I'm kind of scared right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny. But I love it. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. Yeah. So the worth and purpose video, which is on, it's on YouTube. It's on the RP YouTube. Uh, that video, we just chose to present a side of myself. You, we all have many different sides. And a lot of the feedback on the video is like, wow, this guy's a humorless asshole. And it's like, if you've seen any other videos of me, you're like, that's not true. He's a, he's an idiot who makes tons of jokes that aren't even funny. So it, it, yeah, that is absolutely one side of myself is that kind of psychotic part. But yeah, there's plenty of other positive parts. We're all complex people. I think. <laughs> Alrighty. Yeah. So for the, the audience, uh, Mike, where can they find you? Uh, best place is YouTube now. Uh, Renaissance Periodization on YouTube. Type in Dr. Mike RP YouTube. We're putting out three, at least three super depth, in-depth content videos a week. Get on there. And if you want to look at the app or look at the Instagram, there all those links are available through our YouTube. All right. Great. I'll link those in the show notes below. Awesome. Thanks for being on, Mike. Thanks for having me. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.